Welcome to our Owen podcast, a podcast for the Ontario Animal Health Network. I'm Dr. Cynthia Miltenberg, co-lead of the Owen Bovine Network. Joining us today is Dr. David Kelton and Dr. Diego Nobrega to speak about a recent bulk tank milk surveillance initiative. Dr. Kelton is a professor at the Ontario Veterinary College. He's a veterinary epidemiologist and the Dairy Farmers of Ontario Dairy Cattle Health Research Chair in the Department of Population Medicine. His research interests include infectious and metabolic diseases of dairy cattle. And also, Dr. Diego Nobrega is a postdoctoral fellow working in the Ontario Veterinary College. He received his DVM from the Sao Paulo State University in 2008 and worked in private practice on a full-time basis for two years. Diego obtained his Master's of Science in Preventative Veterinary Medicine and a PhD in Infectious Diseases from the University of Calgary. Diego is currently co-leading the Bulk Tank Surveillance Project here in Ontario. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Cynthia. Pleasure to be here. I'm hoping we. Oh, great. I'm I'm hoping we can start a little bit first, just about what the Bulk Tank Surveillance Project is. How how was it envisioned, and what are its goals? Yeah. Um, in in terms of background, this was a project that was actually initiated by Dairy Farmers of Ontario. Um, the funding came from DFO and, and also from OMAFRA through the Agri-Food Alliance and really had three primary objectives. One, to get a sense of where we are, where we are provincially in terms of some important endemic diseases. Secondly, to get a sense of where we are as a province with regards to some emerging diseases, and we'll talk about the specifics, I think, later on. And then the third element was to go through the exercise of accessing a bulk tank sample from every herd in the province. We've got a mechanism in place to do that, but we also had to secure the various permissions to do that so that at some point in the future, if we needed to very quickly do that for perhaps to test samples in case of a foot and mouth disease outbreak or something like that, we actually had a system in place to allow us to do that. So those are really the objectives. And, and so um, we moved forward from there. So I know a lot of consideration went into cons- uh, what tests to include in the project. And I think you in particular, Diego, spent a ton of time um, evaluating all the, all the different tests available what criteria did you consider and, and how did you choose the tests that were included? Well, the first thing we did, Cynthia, was uh, to carry out a large uh, literature review to essentially summarize what was known about the testing of bulk milk samples uh, when used to detect infectious diseases of dairy cattle or essentially any microorganism that is able to cause diseases in dairy cattle. So. We wanted to know what was out there in terms of tests and what we could choose from. So we developed a large list of diseases and pathogens that could be detected using book milk samples, as well as a list of tests that could be used with those samples. And with that large list in hands, we chose tests that met seven different criteria. So first we wanted something that was previously validated, which means that there was some preliminary work carried out demonstrating how well that test worked to detect diseases of dairy cattle. We wanted to know in advance how well the test would perform in bulk milk samples in case we selected. Second, we wanted something that was available in Canada. So there was no point of choosing something that would work but would not be easily accessible to producers. And an example here was uh, the test for digital dermatitis. So there was 
a great test out there that was really good to detect digital dermatitis, but unfortunately was not available for us here in Canada. So there was no point in, in selecting a test like that. Third, we chose tests that would result in minimal to no implications for test positive herds. So as we're all aware, there are some diseases that when test positive herds are flagged, there is a set of legal actions that must be taken, which might include some restrictions in animal movement or any similar countermeasures. And here we opted for tests and diseases with minimal to no implications for test positive herds, meaning that test positive herds would not face any sort of restriction. Number four, we wanted something that could be used with book milk samples. So although technically book milk samples are milk samples, there is some level of discrepancy in the amount of bacteria and other pathogens that are present in those samples. And further, like uh, book milk samples may contain some contaminants such as feces or other residues that could interfere with the testing. So we wanted something that was previously tested specific with book milk samples. Fifth, we wanted a test that was easy to be carried out, and in a sense that the testing protocol was simple and easy to be implemented in the laboratory. And here it's worth mentioning that in general, there is a discrepancy in test reproducibility. So when you compare commercial and in-house tests, commercial tests are much easier to follow and tend to yield comparable results in multiple runs. So we did not want tests that would yield completely different results if carried out in lab A versus a lab B. And to minimize that risk, we opted for commercial kits that were very easy to be used regardless of lab infrastructure. Uh, number six, we wanted something that was useful for producers. And although this concept of usefulness will certainly be dependent on the farm context, we avoided choosing tests that would likely return information that could be biased to producers. And one great example here was bovine viral diarrhea or, or BVD. So BVD was possibly the disease for which we had the largest number of studies reporting on the test of book milk samples. And we had some great studies showing that BVD can be detected successfully in dairy herds using the book milk samples. But the accuracy or how well the test would perform would be heavily dependent on the vaccination status of herds. So when herds vaccinated, the test intended to yield misleading results. And given that a large number of herds here in Ontario vaccinated against BVD, if we had selected BVD as one of the diseases to be tested, many dairy producers, they would get some results that would technically not be useful for them. So we avoided that. We selected tests and diseases yielding valuable results or results that would be useful for most farms in Ontario. And finally, we also selected tests that were of interest to dairy producers. So before closing on the tests and diseases to be monitored, we asked a group of producers to rank diseases that they would like to, to have tests on, that they would have like to have results on. And after, and after having that preliminary survey, we ended up choosing diseases that ranked pretty high in terms of farm interest. So what are the diseases then that you included in the surveillance project? So we chose Salmonella Dublin, we chose Yon's diseases, contagious mastitis, and BLV, bovine leukemia virus. I think maybe you addressed this a little bit at the beginning, um, Dave, but what are the benefits to dairy producers and the greater dairy community to have um, a surveillance system like this in place and this type of monitoring happening? 
So I think there are a number of potential benefits or, or actual benefits, I guess I'll, I'll say, because in terms of um, a lot of these diseases, yonis and leukosis are prime examples. They tend to be subclinical in most of our herds. They're present in, in they're, they're considered endemic, so they're present in many herds, but producers really don't see a lot of clinical signs of these diseases. So they're there in the background and, and they tend to drop out of our uh, consciousness, if if you will. And, and so I think this was an opportunity to remind producers and advisors working with producers that, that these diseases certainly are present in many of our herds. And if there's an interest in doing something about them, that involves a sort of a longer term focused um, approach. The other benefit was in the context of ProAction, which is the National Quality Assurance Program for dairy herds in Canada. And one of the elements is biosecurity. This module was released a couple of years ago and it prompted or was supposed to prompt a conversation between producers and veterinarians about biosecurity on their dairy farms. And I think this was just to add some fuel to that discussion and, and prompt veterinarians and dairy producers to have that conversation about um, keeping certain diseases out of their herd or if those diseases are present in their herd talking about control strategies and, and so forth. I agree that sometimes these diseases are subclinical and we, we lose their um, value where we are not recognizing the value of working on them in amongst all the other things that we have going on on dairy farms. So we had producers receive these results just this fall. Can you tell me a little bit about how that went? How did the producers receive the results and, um, and, and if anybody else received the results? So the results went only to the dairy producers. So they got the results for their farm and only their farm. Um, the results did not go to anybody else. I mean, clearly Diego and I saw them, but but that was the extent of it. Um, one of the conversations, you know, I talked at the beginning about developing this process of access to the samples for testing and so on. Um, there was some industry concern about, you know, confidentiality and so on. So it was very clear in our agreement that the results would go directly to the producers. We're encouraging them to share those results with their herd veterinarian, uh, to have those conversations that I talked about earlier, but ultimately it's up to the producers to make that, that decision. And, and you prepared a few resources to help people understand the results in addition to speaking with their veterinarian. Can you speak to what those, those resources are where producers can find more information about the tests that were completed? Yes, certainly. And, and I, I should give Diego the credit for this because he developed a series of fact sheets, um, one for each of these, these four diseases or disease categories that are quite extensive and, and quite complete in terms of background about the disease, the test, how to interpret the results and and then where to go for additional information. So those were made available to producers directly through Dairy Farmers of Ontario. They were also distributed to um, dairy practitioners through the Ontario Association of Bovine Practitioners. Um, they are supposed to be available on our Dairy at Guelph website. Last time I looked, they had not been posted yet, but I am uh, um, encouraging that that get done done very quickly. 
That's great. Well, let's let's dive in a little deeper then. So round one of the project, as you mentioned, Diego had a couple of different uh, tests involved. So I was thinking that maybe we could discuss each of these in a bit more detail and address some of the common questions that have been received for each of the individual diseases. So you mentioned Yoni's as one of the diseases, so I thought we would start there. What kind of test was used for Yoni's and, and how do we interpret those results? Well, Cynthia, we used an indirect ELISA that detects whether there are antibodies against MAP or the bacteria that causes Yonis in the book milk sample. That test yields a value that we call sample true positive percentage, which is the, just a comparison between what we have in our samples and what we have in a positive control. So we classified using that SP percentage uh, herds into different categories. So herds with an SP percentage lower than 3% were classified as low risk herds, whereas the herds with SP percentage higher than 3%, but lower than 10.5% were considered at a moderate high risk, moderate risk herds. And those herds with an SP percentage equal or greater than 10.5 were classified as a high risk herd. And the way that we defined those was the moderate risk herds are those with at least one milking cow testing positive for MAP, but with less than 10% of infected cows in the milking herd. And the high risk herds would be those with more than 10% of the milking herds testing positive for MAP. So simply put, the more antibodies we have in the sample, the higher the probability that the herd will have antibody positive calls in the milking herd. And we'll, in the context of Young's disease, what needs to be discussed were, is what exactly means to have antibody positive calls in the milking herd. And Young's disease, like very simply, introduction uh, has four different stages and stages one, the animals would be infected but not show any clinical signs of diseases. And uh, it would be almost impossible for us to detect these stage one animals using any of the available diagnostics that we have. Stage two, the infection is still out there, but the animal uh, is shedding uh, bacteria to be detected using tools that detect the bacteria, so not our ELISA that detects antibody. And stage three and four, the animals are sick and shedding antibodies in the milk that can be detected using ELISA. So, what we are seeing with the book milk ELISA is the likely presence of stage three and four calls in the milking herd. And the more stage three and four calls we have in the milking herd, the higher the probability that the book milk ELISA will be positive. So herds that test positive, particularly those high risk herds, will likely have stage three and four calls in the milking herd, which means that MAP is active in the herd and has been there for a while. And, and are there any limitations with this test? Yeah, certainly. So the test is not perfect. As I said, it will not flag the stage one and two animals, nor infections in young stock. So those herds where MAP has recently been introduced, they will be probably false negatives in the bulk milk testing. Uh, also, in some herds where only a few animals are stage three or four, the test will likely return negative results just because there are not sufficient antibodies in the bulk tank milk to be detected to begin with. 
So a few positive herds were likely missed in our screening. That's really helpful for um, interpreting this. And so if a herd comes back as a high positive, what are your recommended next steps for that herd and veterinarian to pursue? Well, the gold standard for diagnostics of Young's disease would be the identification of MAP, either in fecal or any tissue sample. Uh, so currently there are no diagnostic tests good enough to detect stage one animals, but fecal culture would be accepted, uh, would be the gold standard for the identification of stage two, three, and four animals. So a moderate or a high positive herd should confirm herd disease status using uh, some sort of fecal culture of individual animals or from pooled fecal samples. And I want to mention here that we discuss a lot of those diagnostic strategies in our fact sheets and anyone interested should take a look at those to explore the different alternatives on how to confirm her disease status. Thanks, Diego. Let's jump over to Salmonella Dublin. This disease is considered an emerging disease in Canadian cattle farms and we know, has it, we know it has impacts on farms, particularly calf health. Um, but it's also a zoonotic disease, um, meaning it's a risk to people. So I think those are all important points of why it was considered uh, an important disease to include in this um, project. I'm going to, one question both myself I've gotten and I think others have gotten, um, is that these results were reported as a percent positivity. Um, what does that measure and what does it mean? Yeah, thanks, Cynthia. Great question. So again, different tests report, we, we, you know, generate different quantities. So the percent positivity really is a reflection of the amount of antibody that was present in that particular milk sample. Now, the challenge in this is that the leap that people sometimes want to make is assume that if there's more antibody in that milk sample, then that translates into a higher percentage of animals actually in, in the herd that are, that are infected. Unfortunately, with bulk tank milk samples, I think as, as people know, that single sample is, represents all of the milking cows in that herd. So whether it's 40 cows in a small herd or 250 cows in a lar large herd, and each of those cows is actually contributing a different volume of milk to that bulk tank and so to this pooled sample. So you can imagine that if we have a high percent positivity, that that could be one or two animals shedding a lot of antibody, or it could be a lot of animals shedding a little bit of antibody and we could still get a similar result. So we've got to be careful that we don't interpret that as the sort of within herd prevalence of, of disease. Nonetheless, it does give us an indication, I think, that the higher the, the positivity, the more likely disease is to be active in, in that particular herd. Again, as Diego mentioned, with all of these diseases, none of the tests are perfect and you know, in the conversation, hopefully with between producers and veterinarians, they will have that conversation about, as Diego said, how to confirm a particular situation um, and then plan next steps. And with some of these diseases, I think many herd owners may not be interested in doing too much further 
But if they do, there are, you know, some things they need to think about even before they do further individual cow testing in terms of how they're going to use that information and, and what they're going to do about it. Salmonella Dublin, as you mentioned in your, in your uh, comments, is a zoonotic disease. So, you know, I think it's one that um, I had someone ask me just yesterday, um, should we be frightened of Salmonella Dublin? And I guess my response is, I, I don't think we have to be particularly frightened of, of this particular disease. I think it's a reminder, though, that there are actually many diseases that are potentially zoonotic on dairy farms. And whenever, whether it's someone on the farm or a visitor to the farm, just practicing good hygiene, washing hands and, and all those kinds of things becomes critically important in, in, in those cases. So it's a bit of a warning sign there as well. Thanks for that. And I, I really appreciate your comments on, on interpreting the percent positivity because I think sometimes it's been misinterpreted. And when see people see a five, they interpret that to mean 5% of their herd, as you said, when really it is 5% of the positive sample is was detected in that compared to the positive control, I mean. So um, in the lab, it's, it's a different value. We, when reviewing the fact sheet for this disease, I think a lot of producers or veterinarians will find that it encourages you to confirm this test result, um, suggesting, you know, there is a little bit of a risk of a false positive um, in this in this case, um, because we have a low prevalence of the disease. Can you expand on that a little further, Dave? Yeah, I, so this is one of these situations when we do have a low prevalence of disease and, and we have tests that are imperfect, um, we will see some fa false positives, definitely. We don't always know what the false positives are due to. It may be indi an indication of past exposure, or it may be cross-reactivity with another similar um, salmonella organism and, and so on, or it, it may just be part of the normal variation, even in, in, as Diego said, with commercial kits and, and there's, you know, all the work done to try to standardize these, but there is even some within kit variation. So there are a number of reasons. And so what we tend to see in these lower prevalence situations is that we will have some proportion of those, those results that are false positive. And, and that's why, it's important that the producer in, in consult with their veterinarian talk about the context and, and what's gone on in the dairy herd. I mean, what we're really thinking about are those herds that, because it's predominantly, or what we think of Salmonella Dublin, we think of it as a calf disease. So, you know, was there a recent or ongoing problem with respiratory disease in calves that might tie in and, and confirm that there may be something going on in terms of Salmonella Dublin? Um, so a number of things, other things to look for to say, yeah, this is consistent with what we're seeing. And, you know, it could be, and, and I know of at least one farm that contacted me not too long ago and said, you know, we had a, we had a, I got back this, this positive bulk tank result and, you know, we didn't even realize it, but we had a calf respiratory disease issue a couple of months ago. And we thought it was just normal run of the mill pneumonia that we've that we see over and over again but we're going to have a little bit of a deeper dive and and just see whether that might have been salmonella dublin so i think those are the kinds of conversations we're looking to to take place so let's let's move on to our next disease which is the bovine leukemia virus we understand this disease to be 
fairly prevalent in on, on Ontario farms. Maybe you can comment how what percentage of the tests were positive for for BLV and um, and what are the next steps for the high positive herds? As you said, Cynthia, uh, BLV was very prevalent in Ontario, um, like elsewhere in Canada, if I may add. So we're talking here about a disease that was found in nearly 90% of the herds, I believe. But that figure was also seen in other provinces, such as Alberta, PEI, and Quebec. So the, there is no really reason to panic as we're all on the same boat here. So uh, what we should do is that high-risk herds, they should work with their veterinarian to prevent BLV from further spreading on the farm. So the BLV essentially spreads from animal to animal through transfer of blood or uh, other body fluids. So the virus spreads through needles, syringes, gloves, ear taggers, uh, dehorning, irons, hoof knives, etc. So the more we can minimize this indirect contact between animals, the greater the chance of getting rid of the virus. Uh, another thing I must add is that since 90% of herds tested positive, we also have to be extra careful when purchasing animals from other sources. It's very likely that the purchased animals are coming from a BLV-infected farm. So in our fact sheets, we discuss a list of management, the best management practices that should be adopted to limit the spread of BLV. That material is very rich and has a lot of practical recommendations that anyone interested in eliminating the BLV in the long run should consider. And as we spoke about, no test is perfect. What about the BLV test? What are the major limitations with it, Diego? Well, let me just talk a bit about the test. So that test we use to detect antibodies against BLV. So in circumstances where more than 7% seven, 7 of the milking herd is expected to be antibody positive, the test will likely return a positive result. And given that a typical infected herd has nearly half of its milking herd infected, it's very likely that all positive herds were flagged by our testing. But as I said, we might have missed herds where BLV was recently introduced or those herds with less than 7% of infected calls. So those herds would be uh, some false negatives. One comment I have that's specific for BLV is that I particularly do not see a reason to confirming her disease status given how spread that virus is in Canada. So if you tested positive, chances are that you do have the disease in your herd. Thanks for that. That's really helpful. It's, uh, um, you know, it varies a little bit test to test, so it's good to have the specifics for, for each one. So the last part of the project included um, a panel of mastitis pathogens. Maybe you can tell us which ones they were and why those ones are important. Certainly. Um, so we used a commercial kit that tests for four specific mastitis pathogens, Staph aureus, Strep Ag, Mycoplasma bovis, and Prototheca. Um, just a sentence or two about each of these. Staph aureus, very common contagious pathogen, so spread cow to cow. 
very common in many of our dairy herds. In fact, about 50% of the herds were positive on, on this particular round of bulk tank testing. And if you go back to some work we did 10, 15, 20 years ago, if you look hard enough, you'll find Staph aureus on, on many herds, if, if not all dairy herds. Um, so that wasn't surprising. Strep Ag, another very contagious um, mastitis pathogen, less than 1% of bulk tanks were positive for Strep Ag. We've been under the impression that we've essentially eradicated strep ag from our dairy industry um and and that's been almost a global phenomenon and and i think this supports that notion mycoplasma bovis we've never really seen a lot of mastitis attributable to mycoplasma in canadian dairy herds much more common in the u.s we've always wondered why it stops at the 49th parallel although we are very happy that it does um, and again, this is another, just another piece of work that confirms we don't see a lot of mycoplasma in Canadian dairy herds, and, and we're very happy for that. The fourth organism that, that we tested for was Prototheca. We included, it was included in the, this particular test because it tests for all four together. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to interpret because it is an environmental organism. So the first three are generally spread cow to cow um, during milking time and so forth, don't live well in, in, in the environment, so tend not to be contaminants of, you know, they're coming from other sources. So we're pretty confident that we're talking about some degree of, of cow infection. Prototheca as an environmental organism could be coming, could be a contaminant in there as well. So this is another one of these instances of um, hopefully this will, might stimulate a conversation between the producer and the veterinarian. If they were positive on the bulk tank for Prototheca, is that consistent with what they've been seeing in terms of mastitis in their herd? Um, or if not, and, and it's a low mastitis herd and really with not a lot of chronic infections and, and so forth, then it's, it's certainly quite possible that, that that may have just simply been an environmental contaminant. So you mentioned, I think these are PCR tests, so they're different. The other three are ELISA's. Can you just speak a little bit to the differences between those? Yeah, so the first three tests that we talked about were ELISA's, and what they were testing for is antibody that the cow produces to these particular organisms. So not only does the infection have to be present, but the cow's immune system has to respond to that, and that's what we're measuring. So we think of those as being indirect tests. The PCR as a technology, it, it actually identifies DNA from the organisms that we're interested in. So um, if the test comes up positive, we know that there is DNA from Staph aureus, for instance, in that particular sample. Now, we don't necessarily know if that's from a live organism or a dead organism, so there's some potential for some, some false positives to a certain extent in terms of if we're thinking active infection rather than just um, the organism present, but it tends to, um, it, it tends to be much more organism specific. And as long as we have a good primer set, and, and but what I mean by that is that we are identifying appropriate segments of the DNA that are unique to that particular organism, then the test tends to perform really quite well. 
So for a couple of the diseases, we've already talked about what next steps might look like, but there's kind of maybe two things producers and their vets might be considering doing if they want to do more testing based on their uh, results from this project. So let's talk about how they can accomplish that. The first thing they might consider doing is testing a bulk tank again for the disease um, that they're considering. Is that a good idea? And if so, how, how and where do they do it? So I guess I'll maybe take a step back in answering that question, Cynthia, and say that any follow-up testing that is to be done, I think, needs to be in the context of a plan and that the folks asking for that test know how they're going to use that particular result. In other words, what they're going to do with it, right? Why spend money if you're you know, if, if you're not going to know what to do. So repeating the bulk tank tests at this point, um, some people may want to do that. They may want to confirm it. Probably, you know, some may want to do it because the samples that we reported were collected a year ago now in November of 2021. So things change on a farm. So they may want to retest before they then say, okay, we're going to go and take further steps. So that certainly can be done. Um, Lactonet is the lab that did all of the testing for us. Um, they are willing to test bulk tank milk samples. Producers need to contact if they are Lactonet milk recording customers or they use, utilize their DHI services. That can be done through their customer service rep, their, their tester. If it's a non-DHI herd or non-Lactonet milk recording herd, they can contact the district manager and those contact details are on the Lactonet website. Um, in terms of individual cow testing, again, there are a number of different options and, and that could be milk testing through Lactonet. It could be serum or fecal testing, depending on the disease through the animal health lab, or it could be sending calves for necropsy and confirmation in, in the case of Salmonella Dublin. And again, that should be part of, you know, there are a lot of different directions that this could go. Um, some people have talked about, you know, whole herd testing. Maybe one starts with uh, testing higher risk animals, for instance, with Yonis, perhaps older animals rather than first lactation animals because of, of the progressive nature of the disease and so forth. So I think there are a lot of different strategies that could be implemented there. And I think that needs to come out of that, that conversation because what's right for one herd might not necessarily fit another herd. And, you know, as I said at the outset, for me, the really, really critical thing is that if you're going to do additional testing, you need to have thought through, you know, if some of these animals come back positive, what am I going to do from a management and a, you know, risk management perspective? So I think in concert with that, um, you know, there, there are risk assessments out there. We, we developed one for Yonis years ago, and it's still on the uh, yonis.ca website that also generates that conversation about what are the higher risk practices. So if I'm going to test and try to control the disease or potentially even eliminate it down the road, I need to make sure that I've got the management in place that allow me to do that as a, as a dairy producer. So How's that for a long-winded answer to your question? It's great. I think you hit all the all the high points, and um, I appreciate that it really is not one one size fits all. One question we've gotten a whole lot um, about samples is: Can I take individual samples and then pool them? 
What do you think about that? So pooling of, of samples um, is, is not a new concept. And in fact, the bulk tank sample that we tested was a pooled sample, right? And I, as I mentioned at the outset, um, for some diseases, um, people have taken, whether it's fecal samples and sort of taken fecal samples from five or 10 animals, mixed them all together, tested those and others have done it with, with blood or with milk. And then if that group sample comes up positive, then they go back and test the individual animal samples. So in some ways it's, it's viewed as a strategy that, that might be more cost effective. The, the caution there is that there is labor involved. And so I've had a conversation with the Lactonet lab, for instance, about, are they willing to do some pooling? Um, their answer is no, not that they won't do the testing, but they won't do the labor. They just don't have the capacity to do the labor. Um, so they will accept pooled samples, but again, somebody then has to create those pools, keep track of which animals are in the pools and, and so on. So somebody has to assume that labor responsibility. The other thing to keep in mind, and there was some recent work done in, in Quebec out of the University of Montreal that would suggest that if the within herd prevalence of a particular disease, so the proportion of the herd that's positive if it's above 15%, then pooling doesn't make sense because what will tend to happen is that virtually all of your pools will end up positive. And so you'll still end up going to the, and testing all those individual animal samples anyway. So, you know, it, it sounds like a good idea, but with the labor and the implications, probably not that useful in the vast majority of our herds, I would say. So what are the next steps for the project? All the producers received their results this um, September and what's going to happen next? So the funding we have for the project uh, entails a second round of, of, uh, of testing. And, and so we're having those conversations now, whether it will be the same tests in the same organisms or whether we'll do something different is yet to be determined. Um, we, my thoughts on this at this point are that we probably won't repeat the yonis and, and the mastitis pathogen tests simply because I don't think we've got anything more to add to that conversation. I think with Salmonella Dublin as an emerging disease, I think it would be worth repeating. Again, we're a year down the road and to see whether we've got more positive herds. I hope not, but I fear that we might have. Um, and then the other one that we're talking about potentially repeating and, and even is it would be bovine leukosis um, because it's a, a disease of interest on, you know, within the dairy industry, a lot of conversations recently about, you know, should we be doing something as a dairy industry to control that? And, and um, there are some research efforts underway um, in Western Canada and Eastern Canada to evaluate control strategies. And we've even got some, some research work that will be starting within the next year here in Ontario to try to come up with some rational recommendations that producers can implement if they want to try to get leukosis under control in their herds and work towards leukosis reduction and potentially even eradication down the road. That's really interesting. 
I want to thank both of you for joining me today and sharing information about the project. I think it really helps um, expand everyone's knowledge about why and, and what has happened and uh, how they can use these results and make great decisions or best decisions for each dairy farm that received those results. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us today for this Bovine Owen podcast. For more information on the Owen Network and our quarterly reports, check out the website at Owen.